Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. How are you doing today, hey, Jay? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing just fine. Well, we had another busy week, and I thought we'd open with new developments in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into possible Russian interference in the 2016 election, collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, and of course, obstruction of justice. Now, we've known for months now that Mueller hopes to directly question President Trump, and now this week we found out at least a little bit more about what he wants to ask the president, thanks to a lengthy set of questions from Mueller's team to Trump's attorneys that was recently leaked to the media. You know, I wasn't too surprised by any of it, actually. I mean, the questions revolve around things like, well, potential obstruction of justice by the president, as well as the president's knowledge of various meetings between campaign officials and Russian officials, which is exactly what you'd expect the questions to revolve around. And my sense is that it's highly unlikely that the president's attorneys are going to recommend that he answer these questions, at least not in the sort of open-ended, multi-hour sessions with questions and follow-ups and that sort of thing. Because, you know, the president being who he is, uh, the likelihood of his making damaging or incriminating statements, I would say, would be extremely high. Uh, well, I, I, I would add to that as, you know, again, <clears throat> from the legal perspective and looking back on, uh, for example, the Scooter Libby case, uh, the concern is not only it, it's it's simply a matter and, and also the Michael Flynn, uh, some of the, the, the things that have come to light recently in the, the Comey interviews in the book. Um, the, the biggest concern, if I'm the president's lawyers, is he makes a misstatement or or misremembers something. Uh, and that is then cast as as perjury or obstruction of justice. Uh, so I, I can see no no good reason for for him to uh, to testify. Right. I mean, uh, and you would say that with any president, even somebody who is very or any client, even yeah. somebody who's very disciplined and careful with his words. But President Trump has a way of just sort of spouting off that would be that could be potentially very damaging to him going forward. Yes. And I would expect the problem is that, of course, uh, Robert Mueller's team has taken a lot of statements and has gotten a lot of information from witnesses uh, and people that have been indicted. And since the Trump team doesn't know what they've said, the possibility of catching somebody in an inconsistency is would be extremely high the more the president talks. So now, of course, Mueller suggested that if the president isn't willing to cooperate, he'll subpoena him to force his testimony, at which point, I, obviously, the president would either have to answer questions or fall back on his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And of course, in the past, President Trump has said, well, that's something only guilty people need to do, which, <laughs> which of course, that's, that's just not true. But certainly, it wouldn't look good for the president if he went that route. And so I was wondering, you know, your legal legal thoughts on this, right? You're, you have, you're uh, qualified to, what, what do you think, how do you see this playing out exactly? I, I think this is a, uh, and, and the Trump team has to <clears throat> look at this in some ways as this is a political fight, not a legal fight. Um, because you can, you can win on the law and still lose politically. Um, in, in this case, I mean, I mean, again, I'm looking at this through through my lens, but 
if you consider some of the things that that Mueller has been doing, the Mueller investigation, and I think also something uh, that that should be noted is uh, the judge's comments uh, to the prosecution uh, and and sort of directed to uh, to Mueller um, at uh, the um, uh, Manafort hearing. Uh, questioning the the extent of the mandate of the special counsel uh, that you know listen okay you're 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 uh, ostensibly to investigate uh, Russian in, uh, influence um, in the election uh, here you are bringing a case for money laundering uh, in 2005 uh, is that within the the scope um, Likewise, uh, some of the the Michael Flynn stuff that's come out about uh, Comey saying, "Well, yes, we we didn't think Michael Flynn was lying, uh, and then yes, we did, and now we've prosecuted him, and we tried to prosecute his kids, and uh, you know we had people trying to you know make sure we had the right judge for that. I mean, it, so to me, it's it, Trump. Trump is is best doing what he's doing, uh, saying this is ridiculous. There's uh, there's no uh, uh, you know. There was there was no collusion certainly, um, and uh, play it play it like that. So I and that, to me that's if if uh, Mueller wants to subpoena him, um, he can. There's there's some some dangers there though too, uh, in that if Mueller wants to make a big case about people responding to subpoenas, uh, there may be some egg on the face of the Justice Department, uh, who is still resisting subpoenas uh, from the uh, the House uh, and the Senate. So. Um, yeah, I, I look at it. This is more of a, a a political fight than necessarily a legal fight because I don't think there's going to be anything, you know, <clears throat> big smoking gun found at the end of the day uh, legally. Uh, and and even so, uh, the remedy is going to be a political one, which would be impeachment. Uh, so, you know, I want I wanted to I wanted to ask you about specifically one thing you mentioned. I'm glad you brought it up because I might have forgotten otherwise. That whole thing about the Justice Department resisting uh, resisting congressional calls to release more information. Just not, to, not calls, subpoenas. Well, yeah, and just to be clear <laughs> on that, the Justice Department's uh, rationale for that is that they have actually released a good deal of information. And in fact, there are some Republican investigators who are absolutely satisfied with that, like Trey Gowdy, who's no, you know, uh, certainly no flaming liberal, right? But uh, there are some hardliners like uh, your friend Jim Jordan and, and, uh, and the uh, Freedom Caucus folks who don't accept the Justice Department's longstanding uh a practice of not resisting information concerning an ongoing investigation, which to me seems like a pretty reasonable rationale saying that, you know, here we have this investigation. You want us to just let everything out. And given how Washington leaks like a sieve, we have a policy against that. And you want us to violate this policy. To me, that seems like a, and also it's not like they've released nothing. They've released redacted forms of things. They've released a number of documents. So it's not like they're stonewalling. At least that's my take on it. Oh, I, I, it's exactly like they're stonewalling. Uh, and each each release, again, keep in mind, they've made that same excuse for each time, well, we can't re- release this because it's classified, it's national security, and, and so forth. And when those documents have come out, uh, and and oftentimes in largely unredacted form, the only the only secrets that were, were being preserved were you know, trying to prevent embarrassment for, to the Justice Department. Um, so that, I mean, that's that's happened again and again. And I, I really think, and again, you, look, you can... You can say Washington uh, leaks a lot, and I agree it does. Um, but if if you 
if you have congressional oversight uh, or you don't, you either believe in the elected people uh, being in charge and having oversight over these agencies or you don't. Because if, if the if the agencies can just say, you don't need to see that, uh, I think that's that's a big uh, problem for uh, for a democracy. But, but just to be clear, this isn't a new thing that the Justice Department, Department invented on the spot saying, wait, we need a rationale. Oh, how about this is an open investigation? I mean, they, there there is precedent for not doing this. And so this isn't just some thing that they said, well, we just want to start. That's why that's where I think I fundamentally I understand the point you're making. But I think characterizing it as stonewalling is, well, I, I would say going too far. Well, keep in mind, I mean, the, the scope of the request I'm talking about are to what extent did the Justice Department rely on uh, the dossier to get a FISA warrant? I mean, look, that's that's a pretty is there is there still an investigation going on relating to that? Um, no, it, it relates to the Justice Department's um, actions on, uh, you know, what what they told a federal judge, which based on what has come out appears to not have been true. Uh, so, or, or at least they with, withheld information from a federal judge in a FISA process. And that, that should, you know, to, to spy on a, a presidential campaign and that, that should, that should trouble everyone. And again, I know people say, oh, you're just defending Trump. Um, but, uh, my gosh, I mean, just if, if you can imagine, um, you know, this was say this was the Nixon white house, uh, and uh, they went and and got a warrant to uh, to literally wiretap. Um, <laughs> you know, but, you know in, in, in a sense, though, I think what a lot of people on the left are saying, and I, and I tend to agree with this, is that Congress isn't acting as a sort of impartial oversight body, at least not the House. I think you can make a better case for the Senate, but in the House. The House Republican leadership, I feel, and a lot of people in left field, is essentially acting as part of the the Trump defense team. And so this idea of having you release all this to these folks who seem to be completely in the bag for the president, I understand that, that there's some trepidation, understandable trepidation in doing that. The House, I believe, uh, has uh, has conducted itself, the House Republican leadership has conducted itself deplorably. I think the Senate's done a much better job, but and, and the House's report that, oh, well, we didn't find any collusion. It's not that we really asked many witnesses or did a whole lot, but, you know, let's just well, move they, along. They, you know, they they what information can they get? Uh, you know, they, they, I, could have, I, they could have called a lot more witnesses. They could have subpoenaed, speaking of subpoenas, subpoena more people. They weren't interested in doing this. And again, <laughs> again this, isn't just a, this isn't just a Congress thing. This is, I'm talking about the two institutions. There's, the, there's clearly a huge difference between the House and the Senate and the seriousness and the, uh, that with which the Senate is taking this and trying to make it more of a bipartisan or nonpartisan thing, which there's a long tradition of this, and the House just being its polarized, you know, very partisan self. And, and so I think that that's a huge problem, and I'm very concerned about that. Well, okay, fair, fair enough. But to me, it goes back to it doesn't much matter what their motives are. If their motives are to defend Trump, great. If their motives are to find out what's going on, better. Uh, but regardless, the legal obligation of the when you receive a subpoena is the same. Well, okay, I, I see what you're saying. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. So the uh, Justice Department is resisting full compliance with some of these requests uh, after a subpoena. So what what sort of recourse does Congress have then? 
They can threaten to uh, hold uh, officers of Justice Department in contempt or uh, impeachment pro- uh, proceedings. Okay, and in fact, and, there are and some. And if, if you if you recall, um, several months ago, the, we kind of came to this flashpoint before, and uh, Paul Ryan uh, did threaten to hold members of the Justice Department in contempt. Uh, at which point, they did release information. Uh, which is now something that that's pretty important that we know about the the dossier and how it was funded and who paid for it. Um, you, you know, again, if, if what we found out was that the the DNC paid for this, uh, that the Justice Department, that the FBI had actually fired uh, the uh, dossier author uh, for leaking to the press, and yet uh, went to the uh, uh, FISA court saying we've got a a, a witness uh, and and based at least partially. Uh, a wiretapping of an American citizen uh, associated with a, a political campaign uh, on that information without telling the judge that their informant was someone they had fired who had been paid to gather that information by the uh, that candidate's opponent. So, you know, it seems... So, I mean, that's, so, so those are the remedies, and that's what we find out when you exercise those remedies. So, so you're saying basic... I mean, it sounds to me... Like you're saying that uh, essentially the Justice Department is is acting in a very, well, corrupt way and that the sole reason for them not complying with this is because they want to hide their corruption. And is that is that what you're saying? I just based that that would be a, a reasonable reading of, wow. of, of the evidence based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, well, I would say that would be a, a reasonable summary of the Republican talking points on that. Well, no, I, I would no, argue no, differently. Me, me, and, and if you want, I can start to spell out some other evidence here. I mean, the the uh, Strzok and uh, Lisa Page texts, um, uh, which and, and the the emails between them. Um, which the judge, which which were which were which were lost, which were lost. They had those darn computers. They never act up. If only they were funded better. Uh, but yet the inspector general was able to uh, recover them, um, and they were they were pretty damning. You know, I, I think uh, I there think, was a discussion yeah. between a a lawyer and uh, a prosecutor, um, on on how the lawyer could maybe play up uh, inappropriate personal contacts to and, and keep a judge that he was friends with. On the the uh, the Flynn matter, and that's that's the judge judge right rightfully recused himself, regardless. Um, and and Mueller, I believe, actually took Justice steps Department about thing. that. I mean, Mueller well, yeah. actually took step before any any uh, any of this came out. And and see, that's to me. I, I think. Well, he took well he took steps after it it came out. I think it was before, but we we can we can check on that. But in any case, it it seemed pretty clear to me that you are just you're starting from the assumption that the Justice Department has has. Uh, evil is probably too strong, but nefarious, nefarious motives. And so, you know, I guess if you start from that point, you can find all sorts of evidence to support that. So, uh, but anyway, I, I can see, I can see where you reach those conclusions starting from that, uh, starting from that assumption, which I just don't share with you. So, you know, I should point out that, you know, it's pretty clear to me, at least, that Mueller is focusing on the obstruction of justice thing more than anything else. And I should point out that the president can't really be charged with this. I mean, criminally, what would happen is it would go in Mueller's report to to Rosenstein, and then Congress could choose to act or, you know, not act on that. But it seems to me the only sort of legal remedy here is if it comes to that impeachment and removal, essentially. And that goes back to your point that this is, you know, it's one thing to look at this as a legal thing, but it's also maybe more than in most instances, very much a political thing as well. 
Right. Yeah. Trump will not be prosecuted in court. He will be prosecuted, if at all, uh, in a political forum in right. the Congress. So he needs to play the game like that's like yeah, that. Absolutely. And, and you know, the Mueller investigation isn't all President Trump had to, I don't know, worry and rage about uh, this week. There was also brand new Trump personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who uh, sat down for a talk with uh, informal Trump chief of staff uh, and also Fox News host Sean Hannity for a talk about the payoff to porn star Stormy Daniels, who, of course, alleges that she and Trump had a brief uh, encounter, affair, whatever you want to call it. Now, what's not in question here is that Trump attorney Michael Cohen paid Daniels $130,000 for her silence. And President Trump has gone on the record as saying that he knew nothing about the payment, but Giuliani told Hannity that Trump repaid the $130,000. And so, if so, if that's true, and if it can be demonstrated that Cohen's payment was made specifically to assist Donald Trump's electoral chances and not to defend his honor or whatever, it could constitute a significant campaign finance violation. And, you know, some of my fellow liberals see this as Trump being caught in a clear lie, and I get that. But as I see it, Giuliani's claim that Trump reimbursed Cohen isn't necessarily at odds with Trump's claim that he didn't know about the specific payment to Daniels. I mean, okay, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did, in fact, know about the payment. Uh, but as long as there, you know, wasn't one separate $130,000 payment from Trump to, to Cohen with, I don't know, like a... a, a the, something, in the memo line. Yeah, in the memo yes. line saying porn star payoff Hush or something. Yeah, porn star, yeah. Exactly. I think without that, there's probably not enough evidence to demonstrate to the satisfaction of the FEC that uh, there was some kind of campaign uh, finance violation here. Uh, that is, that's my take. Jay, what do you think about this? Well, I, I, yeah, I think this is in some ways um, helps the, cam the campaign finance claim, which, which to me is a little uh, weak on, on its, its face. Again, we've talked about this, that there's never been any successful prosecution for this sort of idea that uh, it was an in-kind contribution that wasn't reported. And if it was an in-kind contribution that wasn't reported, uh, that is that is one of those. Um, <laughs> I mean, there that that is it typically. I shouldn't say typically. Almost always. I mean, a, a civil matter rather than a criminal matter. It's a fine that you pay. Right. In fact, the Obama administration had had numerous issues with this. Uh, they reached. They paid something in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand, I think, to the FEC. Um, to settle the claims uh, after he was elected. Uh, you will recall the Clintons had uh, numerous issues regarding uh, campaign contributions uh, from uh, China uh, that, that may or may not have been linked to the Chinese government. Um, and again, that was all settled by just paying and you worked it out with the... So the idea that this is, this is a, oh my gosh, someone made a um uh one of these kind of uh and and unreported payments uh, uh you know and, right. and you didn't you didn't report it as an in-kind contribution um that ought not to be or it would be surprising if that were to be a uh, something of an impeachable offense uh, no, or no. or i yeah. mean it's a bigger the bigger the bigger piece is the type of offense that justifies uh raiding the lawyer's office uh and installing a a, a pen um uh, pen tap on his uh, uh, phone. Um, 
So well, and of course, you're you're making that determination based on you know uh, not, on what I not know. Very much I, I've, exactly. I've okay. said this before. If if that's all there is, is a you didn't report this campaign contribution, which maybe should have been reported as a contribution, maybe not. No one's really ever made that clear determination. Um, that's that certainly seems to be overkill. If if that's all if that's all there is, and maybe there's more, and, and we don't know. Um, the, you know the other the other piece though, and I'm sorry, I keep no, interrupting. No, I was going to say, and I just want to point out that that's separate from the Mueller investigation. And of course, right. this is what on the right leads some people to say, well, it seems to us that these are minor things. And so it seems to us that given all of these things that are happening, there must be some sort of deep state law enforcement intelligence community push to discredit and remove Donald Trump from office. I mean, that that seems to me the kind of logic of that. I think that's completely absurd, but I sort of get where they're coming from, even though I think they're entirely wrong uh, on that. Oh, now you threw me off a chance of that. Although, although I do just want to interject this, which is apropos of nothing. But have you noticed how like all the, the media always refers to her now as uh, former adult film star actress? Uh, is she former? She- former. I, I thought she I was mean, doing I, well, some. I'm just, I'm, Go ahead. I think, I think she's moving like directing or something like that. But um, I thought I just, she. Yeah, I thought yeah. Well, you you know, and I think that really is the key, right? Because as a matter of law, this is not a big deal. Not really. I mean, in context, as you pointed out, there have been plenty of instances of things even bigger than this. But hush money to porn star right before election. That's, you know, that's, that's like the media, you know, catnip sort of thing. And that's why it's such a big story, certainly. You know, I should also point out in terms of uh, the FEC actually doing anything about that right now, two of the six FEC seats are vacant. And so of the four commissioners that are there, two are Republicans, one's a Democrat and one's an independent. So the idea that there'd be some kind of finding against Trump, while it's not impossible, it would be incredibly unlikely unless there was some truly compelling evidence. And even then, these FEC investigations tend to have, have been taking like a year, two years to conclude. So this is really more of a, like I said, porn star affair, kind of hush money thing as Former opposed to, yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> well, yeah, it's almost like they're trying to, and to me, if I'm a, if I'm a conservative and I am, and you you just fix it on some sort of the funny things that that the media adopts and sort of like this gives her a little more legitimacy now. She's a former porn star. She doesn't do that anymore. Um, you know, it's the you really think that gives her more legitimacy? I, I don't well, know. then then why why do they then why is the why Maybe is that the, the system if, saying that if she's not actually acting in porn anymore, then she would be a former this porn minute. Star. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't I don't know. I haven't looked. Is, I haven't is looked Mer- up is Meryl her. Streep a former actress because she doesn't have a movie out right well, now, this right now. No, let's be know. fair. I haven't actually looked up uh, Stormy Daniels and IMDb or anything like that. So maybe that's true. If she hasn't done anything in a couple of years, I don't know. Perhaps maybe, she has officially retired. Maybe we should do that. I don't know, but. I'll, I'll leave that to other folks and let that be in their browser history. So, um, all right. You know, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest, well, we, I'm going to say newest supporters, but actually this week we're sort of rethanking old supporters who have generously increased their support for the show. Wow. First, yeah, I know. Uh, they don't know when to quit. Yeah, exactly. So first we have Anne, who's a longtime listener and someone I always enjoy seeing on the Politics Guys Facebook page. She's there all the time with great comments. And she recently redonated to the show through PayPal. And she says, we're the best politics podcast ever and that she appreciates how we bring some clarity and badly needed discussion to our current politics. Well, thank you, Anne. 
Next, we have Andrew, who increased his monthly sustaining supporter pledge on Patreon, and he wrote, I've been slowing my day-to-day absorption of the news because it's just so much all the time. God, I know how that feels. Uh, So your podcast and a few others have been great for me to do that without losing track of what's going on. I'm impressed at your ability to tackle the heady topics with finesse and grace, and the interview shows have been consistently interesting as well. As always, thanks for the show. Well, thank you, Andrew. We really do appreciate Thanks, it. You know, and I wanted to mention now, now Jay, you're you're not really a podcast guy. I mean, aside from our podcast, as you've mentioned, right. but I'm not. You know, if you're if listeners are probably are a little bit more like me, not in most respects, please God, I hope you're not. But in, in the way that you probably listen to a bunch of podcasts, and you know, I've been listening to podcasts for years. But for a long time, I didn't even think about supporting any of them financially. And then I got to a point where I thought, yeah, maybe I could chip in a little bit. But still, it took me a long time to actually take that next step. And, you know, I didn't feel any great compulsion to support these huge shows that, you know, the man is in charge of with, you know, with that kind of thing. Uh, I always have this thing about the man, you know. Uh, But I realized there were some smaller independent shows that I really appreciated. Shows like The Policy Scout and Philosophize This, both of which, by the way, are great shows. I highly recommend them. And I wanted to help them out. And so I ended up, you know, supporting them on Patreon. And and I'm really glad I did. I, I mentioned that because if my situation sounds anything like yours, you know, I'm wondering maybe you'll consider doing what I did for some of my favorite shows and taking that next step as well. Because, you know, I've said it before, your support is what makes this show possible. Uh, and so if you'd like to uh, join or rejoin, in this case of Ann and Andrew, all of our great Politics Guy supporters, you can just go to politicsguys.com. Uh, and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links, or the direct link is politicsguys.com slash support. Thanks very much. We really do appreciate it. Okay, moving on. Let's move away a little bit for Trump administration scandals. <laughs> that will be nice. And talk a little bit about trade policy. Uh, this week, President Trump once again extended the temporary exemptions of Mexico, Canada, and the EU from his steel and aluminum tariffs, tariffs that were put in place under a uh, what I would call a highly dubious national security provision in trade law. Now, the extension for Canada and Mexico is being used as leverage during the NAFTA talks, which are still re- uh, ongoing. And the EU, though, received an extension in the hope that they'll eventually agree to the voluntary steel and aluminum import quotas the administration is asking them to implement. Uh, but European leaders don't really seem very interested in this. And so there are threats to retaliate if those tariffs do, in fact, go into effect. And, and at the same time, Late this week, President Trump set a high-level trade delegation to Beijing. I mean, these were all the, the really trade bigwigs, the Treasury and Commerce Secretaries, the U.S. Trade Representative, the head of his National Economic Council. And, of course, President Trump has been very focused on what he believes is just the devastating impact of cheap Chinese steel and aluminum on American jobs, though I should point out both liberal and most conservative economists disagree with his tariff-based solution, arguing that it's actually going to do more harm to U.S. industry and, by the way, U.S. consumers than uh, other possible solutions. I would be one of those people. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask you, Jay, maybe we should take these two things separately, even though they're both trade. What do you think is going to happen with our NAFTA partners and the EU. I mean, do you see permanent exemptions being something that the Trump administration will actually do or not? Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. I think no, I think look, I, you know, the more the more I watch this, um, 
the more it's kind of fascinating, the more it's sort of like, yeah, maybe this is just the way he operates all the time. And we sort of thought this was the way he was going to operate all the time that, um, and it's, it's kind of funny if you, if you go back and, um, I can remember I read, uh, art of the deal back in, you know, 1989. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's sort of, so much of it is, is still there. And maybe you, you tend, we, we tend to forget and we think he's doing something else, but I think maybe this is just the Trump way of negotiation. Uh, he stakes out this far extreme crazy position. Uh, we're going to start a trade war. We're going to impose quotas. We're going to do this and that. Um, and then, uh, on the other hand, sort of sits down and says, well, maybe we can hold off. Let's talk. Uh, and I think, I think there's going to be some, some renegotiation, um, uh, on NAFTA and with the Europeans, and I think we'll end up with something that uh, that's going to be livable for for everyone. I, I don't foresee uh, a trade war uh, with with those partners, uh, just because they're they're too important, uh, and, and no one no one really wants the trade war. And the the problems there, I think, are are not as intractable as they are with China. Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's a great point, Jay. Because I was thinking along the same lines. I mean, it seems to me, based on what we know about the president's business history, that the idea of agreeing to a a permanent anything as opposed to a series of extensions doesn't make sense because you give up that leverage and you can keep on pushing on that, regardless of whether you plan on extending it indefinitely. Anyway, and, and you know, it makes sense to me. I think that when you're talking about isolated incidents and when you're talking about just a, a limited number of players like a, a real estate slash branding uh, conglomerate billionaire or whatever and the people he's working with, that strategy maybe makes a certain amount of sense. But when you're talking about games with so you know that are so much more massively involved with so many more players, the importance of stability and, and, you know, forging solid ongoing relationships, maybe that was never a thing in Donald Trump, the businessman world. But in terms of, you know, relations between countries, between long-term allies, that is important. And I think that the president just doesn't appreciate that. I, I think there may be something to that. Um, and again, I'm going to speculate on what whether he gets this or not. But I, I would just say I think there is a difference in that in, in the the private sector world, uh, you can negotiate as tough as you want. And, and, and look, if you make a deal, great. Uh, if the deal falls through, then you go on, you look for somebody else to make a deal with, right. uh, you know, and it's, but, but global politics are a little bit different, uh, in that we can't just, you know, it's more difficult to just walk away, uh, so to speak from a relationship with somebody and, and find a, you know, it's like a new supplier or a new, you know, new whatever, or, you know, buy a new piece of property. Um, so that said, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing, and as we see the Trump stuff on the longer term play out, I, I think that's right. That's, this is the way he does it, whether it really works on a more complex level, we have multiple players and sort of wheels within wheels within wheels, you know what I mean? Where you're talking about, mm -hmm dealing with other countries who have internal issues and internal economic issues and their relationship with, with other countries. Um, there's just, you know, multiple layers of complexity uh, that, that happen. And, and again, yeah, in international relations and, and trade, there is sort of this idea that, that uh, consistency and, and uh, you know, plainly uh, indicating your, your uh, intent and sending signals is um, 
uh, stability, you know, is sort yeah. of a value where it's not necessarily a value in uh, in the private sector. And that depends on your industry, I suppose, too. But, um, but yeah, and I also think to kind of add to that, it's not just we're talking about uh, atomized actors in an economic marketplace. You know, the United States has uh, a security concerns and is sure. sort of has that leading role in the world in terms of the security and the stability is provided to Europe and Asia, you know, it really uh, many parts of the world in the post World War II era, and that—that's the sort of thing I think that the president perhaps downplays more than more than he should. Uh, but but I but I fundamentally agree with you. At least I hope we're not being overly optimistic here. That whether it's uh, our NAFTA partners, the EU, or China, that it won't get to the point of a trade war. Uh, but let, let's hope let's hope we're. Both it hasn't right seemed to yet. And, and again, yeah. the, the problems I mentioned with with China being more intractable. Uh, the the bigger issue to me, and I think to most U.S. companies. Uh, is the intellectual property issue rather than steel and aluminum? Yeah, and, and you know, I think uh, steel and aluminum—that's that's something you can negotiate around, and you can negotiate numbers around, and so forth. And uh, it's a commodity that's going to uh, ebb and flow in terms of of prices and what's needed, and and how big a deal it is. The intellectual property thing, though, is is pretty fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you there. You know, one point that I think hasn't gotten enough focus in all of this talk on trade is the effect of this on kind of the international system that, that we've set up in, in the post-war era and the, the, specifically the WTO. You know, it seems clear to me that President Trump has little use for multilateral agreements of any type, especially multilateral trade agreements. And he pretty clearly doesn't seem to care a lot about the WTO's dispute resolution process. But my, I'd argue that multilateral agreements and, and organizations like the WTO are essentially what have made our current system possible. And it's a system that almost all economists, left or right, will say has been a huge net benefit, which is not to say that everyone's benefited. There certainly has been some pain. But by moving away from the WTO, by moving away from multilateral agreements, I think the U.S. endangers that system and also makes it a lot easier for other countries like China to do the same thing if they're not getting the rulings they're like they like. You know, I mean, to me, it's kind of like saying, well, I don't like the calls that the referee is making. So from now on, I'm going to decide what a foul is and how many free throws I get. I mean, that's just not a sustainable system. And again, it goes back to that point we talked about earlier about you have to think about the long-term stability of the system and you can't be focused on what's in our best short-term interest because that kind of thinking is going to lead to, I think, real trouble uh, later on in the game. There's also, though, let me let me uh, sort of extend the sports metaphor a little bit, though. There's there's the WTA and, and the idea of saying you're walking away from it. And there's also sort of the uh, sometimes rough justice uh, in the sports world that sometimes you, you got to sort of, you know, throw sort of a hard check or maybe maybe, you know, you throw a pitch a little bit inside um, just to send a message. Sure, absolutely. And I think I think sometimes that that may be because because look, you you know, the calls may or may not uh, go your way. Uh, but but I think sometimes you you need to do that or you need to send the uh, the manager out to to yell at the umpire, uh, fully aware he's going to get ejected 
Uh, but you make the point. No, I think that, that that's a fair point. But of course, it's one thing to do that. And it's another thing to say, well, no, actually, I don't agree that that was We're a, the game. a right. strike. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm going to take my base anyway, you know, that kind of thing. So I just mixed my sports metaphors, but that's okay. I'm obviously thinking a lot about basketball, this being, you know, uh, this being the uh, postseason in the NBA and me being a uh, Still, while I'm in Cincinnati, a Cleveland person, you know, and the Cavs and all that. But anyway, uh, I'm sure uh, listeners could care so little for that. So let's move on. Uh, This week, T-Mobile and Sprint, the third and fourth largest wireless carriers in the U.S., announced a merge valued at around $26 billion. That is, if the deal is approved by government regulators, and if it is approved, it would make the combined company, which they'll still be just calling T-Mobile, the number two carrier with around 100 million customers, which would be second to Verizon at 116 million and slightly more than AT&T's 93 million. Now, the companies claim that the merger is necessary so they can compete with AT&T and Verizon in building out 5G networks, which they say that on their own, they just don't have the capital to, to build up, essentially, and so they'll become increasingly uncompetitive. Now, T-Mobile and Sprint considered a similar merger in 2014, but the Obama administration said they wouldn't approve it. Their argument was that going from four to three wireless carriers would result in less competition and end up harming consumers. And they're almost certainly hoping now that a more business-friendly Trump administration is going to see things differently. Though I'd point out that the fact that both companies are foreign-owned doesn't necessarily really work in their favor. Um, So, Jay, what do you think about this? I mean, do you expect the Trump administration to approve the merger? And do you think they should approve it? Um, On the merits, and again, I'm not I'm not uh, an economist for the FTC, and I haven't sat down to look at this. Because sure. when, I mean, we we should be clear when when these sort of things are brought up uh, for approval, uh, Federal Trade Commission approval, um, it's it's a big it, it's a big lengthy process. Oh, yeah. and, and all market market analysis, uh, and and market penetration, and and how pro competitive or anti competitive is this? And and in in so many cases, there's it's a little bit of both. Um, so you know, to say I'm I'm qualified to make that determination of whether the market or whether the merger should go go forward is sort of a a stretch. Um, but I'll admit I'll take that stretch and I'll say yes, it should. <laughs> but uh, I I think it it in this case it is sort of a a pro competitive situation because what you'll have is uh, it's the ability of one player uh, two players to sort of stay in the market as opposed to getting knocked out completely. Um, so I, I think it's I think the the FTC will eventually come down with the uh, the decision that this is not anti-competitive uh, and is in fact pro-competitive and pro-consumer. Um, now what Trump will do with it is always sort of a little bit of a wild card because as we were we were just saying, um, he likes he likes to have leverage, uh, and I'm I'm wondering if maybe um, uh, you know this is one of those deals where he starts well I don't know I don't know and you know tries to squeeze a little something out of out of either of them. Um, you you just you just never know for sure. But uh, based on again, based on what I've what I've read and what my understandings are, and with the qualification that I'm not an FTC economist, uh, I, I think the the merger should go forward and, and probably will. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I hope I hope that's what happens. You know, I think the one big difference between uh, the Obama decision in in 20, 2014, I think I said it was, and uh, now is that five G is much more of a thing. And and if you take a, if you do read some of the literature on this, the cost to build out those networks that's going to be pretty significant. And so I think 
And again, I think if you think in terms of how regular, what regular people's experience with their wireless carriers are, I mean, I think we all kind of know on a kind of common sense sort of level, it seems like there are two kind of real wireless carriers. I mean, in terms of full service kind of, you know, and that's of course, you know, that's uh, AT&T and Verizon. And then, well, if you want to save a few bucks and not get quite as much, then you go with T-Mobile or Sprint basically. And so it seems to me that increasingly, well, if this doesn't go through, we're actually going to go from two real carriers and two kind of semi also rans to two real carriers and two carriers that can't even compete. So I think this actually makes it more competitive than less. I'd rather have three legitimate competitors than two and a couple other companies that also sort of do this for people who can't afford, you know, good service, basically. Right. And and there's there's also a, a benefit, a public benefit, just in having more companies out there building up this infrastructure. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. So uh, it remains to be seen, but on this, on this, we certainly are uh, absolutely in, in agreement. And you know, I'm I'm coming from a point where I tend to be, as someone on the left, I tend to be somewhat skeptical of uh, of these these kind of big mergers big and business. so forth. Yeah. So big business Wall Street mergers. You know, absolutely. But in this case, I think it just makes sense from a from a consumer and competitive standpoint because you know something I pushed for years is that I'm not anti business. What I am is I'm anti anything that reduces competition because it ends up being worse for consumers. All right. Uh, you know, moving on this week, 18 states led by California, one of my favorite states, uh, sued the EPA over the agency's plan to reconsider auto emissions rules that were written under the Obama administration. The Obama-era rules would raise average efficiency requirements for, for cars to 50 miles per gallon by 2025. And these are standards that the Scott Pruitt-led EPA says are based on outdated information and that may be too stringent. Now, the lawsuit says that the EPA's change to the Obama rule, or proposed change, sorry, is being made arbitrarily and capriciously. And we should point out that that's a, that's a legitimate legal argument. Whether it will prevail or not is another thing. But as we've said before, regulatory agencies can't just make changes because, well, it, they feel like it, essentially. Sure. And, uh, and also, the EPA plans to or hopes to revoke an exemption. This is kind of a big deal. An exemption that's been given to California for decades that allows California to set its own more stringent standards for, for these things, for many environmental things, in fact. Now, this is a big deal because obviously California is a huge state and its higher standards more or less force automakers to kind of ratchet up their environmental standards across the country because they don't want to have a you know a separate standard just for cars they sell in California. And so I guess I have a couple of questions for you on this, Jay. Uh, first yeah. off, do you think that the EPA's change of course here is arbitrary and capricious? And secondly... Do you think states like California should be allowed to, how should I put it, to not be shackled by mandates from Washington, D.C., but instead have the <laughs> freedom to make policy that meets the needs of their populations? Oh, so, boy. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that formulation. So why oh, don't you take are... the arbitrary and capricious part of it first? What do you think? I, I think this will probably not be found to be arbitrary and capricious. Uh, and again, this goes to sort of just an administrative law stuff. Sure. Agencies are are granted a wide range, a, a whole lot of deference 
Uh, and, and arbitrary and capricious is, is a difficult standard to prove. Uh, it's, it's, it's really got to be, um, you know, again, with nothing with to, to support it. And let's put it this way. If, if you, if, uh, the EPA even does a halfway decent job of saying, here's our justification, any sort of reasonable justification, um, that's that is typically going to pass muster in the courts. Now, now look, is it going to pass muster in the uh, the district courts in California to start? No, probably not. But as it works its way it works its way up, I I anticipate that. So, or, or I'm not even sure where are they, are they all, have they been all filed in uh, the D.C. I you know I don't know, but just to your point there. So, for instance, if uh, the EPA said, you know what, we're just going to throw out fuel efficiency requirements, that would probably meet that thing. But that's not what that they're... would probably be arbitrary and capricious. Exactly. Yes. But if so, you say we have we have studied this, here are some some things we're basing our 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 our, our decision on. Uh, we think uh, these these uh, things should be scaled back. That's that's a hard case to say that that's arbitrary and capricious. Well, what about the second part of it, the California waiver? What what do you think about that? Oh man, that is that's like the big fat one right over the plate. Um, no, absolutely, California should uh, not be able to simply make its own um, uh, rules on uh, things like like emissions. Okay, and you you of and course, you know of course I should point why? out. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. Why? <laughs> no, I mean this. This is a uh, because the the primary purpose uh, of our constitution. This is something we don't talk about much, but the biggest problem that it was put in place to solve was uh, the fact that that interstate commerce could not move forward because each state had this patchwork of regulations that would prevent commerce from moving from state to state. Uh, and, uh, you know, McCullough versus Maryland and the guy wanted to, you know, have a steamboat come down there. And, and they said, no, you got to have your guy get out of the boat and our guy gets in the boat. And, uh, you know, it's sure. this whole big thing. It was a burden on commerce. And that's sort of exactly what uh, California is imposing. Uh, yes, I'm all about federalism, but this is federalism uh, in in the sense that that it was intended that one state can't uh, dictate uh, the the commercial realities of the entire country. And, and see, of course, I would obviously disagree on this, saying that uh, decades of experience have suggested that this is not really a, a burden on commerce. And so, given that there's really no evidence after so much practical real world experience that it is that the state should be allowed to do this sort of thing. So here I'm coming out as the advocate of federalism and you're coming out as uh, more of a let the man dictate to the states. So. Well, you're, you're saying, uh, let's, let's put the, uh, if the, if the, the print, you're saying that what has been, what they've done so far has not been now. And again, the only reason it's been constitutional is because there's been a federal waiver right. saying, okay, we'll let you guys do this. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but keep in mind, it's, it's a matter of, uh, I'm arguing not about the, whether the exercise of the power is, is wise or unwise or whether it's been abused, uh, but but whether that power exists uh, in the states or whether it exists in the federal government, and I think the Constitution in this case says it's it's commerce, it's the federal government, interstate commerce. That's- yeah, and, and and I agree with you fundamentally there because with that, if that waiver, you know, if that waiver was granted and that waiver can be taken away as long as it's not done well arbitrarily and capriciously, and capriciously yes. right? But uh, but yeah, so on that on that fundamental point, I think I, I you know I see your point obviously, and uh, I guess 
Some listeners might say, well, does this even really matter? Because it seems like everything's going to electric cars and all this and so forth. And, you know, that's that's part of the story that gets a lot of press, certainly. But the other part of the story that doesn't get as much is if you just take a look on the road today, you see so many big behemoth SUVs and, and things like that. So that that's the other part of it. So I would argue that actually that, you know. Yeah, and, and actually I, I throw out something just the, kind of a fun fact for the uh, – uh, the the red staters um, uh, in that much like the old tax system, uh, the folks who uh, because of the way that the cafe standards work, uh, the folks who drive the uh, big behemoth uh, SUVs and trucks and so forth are subsidizing right. uh, the electric cars uh, for the blue staters uh, who. Yeah. You know, and the reason often, why is often, because often hold them in, in contempt. Yeah, because that's uh, CAFE stands for corporate average fuel economy. And so you take that average over the entire fleet, basically, of, of cars that are of cars that are made, essentially. So. So, yeah, and we, we certainly appreciate that that subsidy. Those of us who are. A and, little the, more... <laughs> and again, the way it works is because, uh, I mean, uh, Detroit sells more of these bigger cars. They have to make up for it by also selling more of the more fuel efficient ones so that they get a higher profit margin on the bigger ones that can then subsidize uh, losses that they essentially would otherwise take on on smaller cars. Absolutely. So I uh, anyway. All right. So thank, thank, thank a redneck. Yes, exactly. That that is. Uh, I don't know exactly where I fall in that. I I have a uh, I have a V six, but it's a. It's a Toyota RAV4, so it's kind of a small SUV. So I don't know exactly if I'm helping or, or hurting on this around 20-something miles a gallon. Or not. At least I'm not driving something called an Armada or, you know, something like that. Or, or an Escalade, which I couldn't afford in the first place, even if I wanted one. So, all right, it's time for what we're reading, where we kind of step back from all this craziness and talk about some of the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, or watching sometimes. Jay, what do you got for us this week? Um, okay, mine's mine's a little bit. Uh, this is probably not enough big picture sort of what I'm reading because usually we go with the big meta, you know. Um, but it follows up on what we were talking about. I just think it's it's important, and that is uh, Kimberly Strassel's piece uh, in Friday's Wall Street Journal uh, about the Justice Department and uh, why it is perhaps being defiant in in those subpoenas. Um, I think it's I think it's a good a good article to read, and she uh, makes the case much better than I could. Um, and, uh, Kimberly Strassel is a wonderful writer who's been on top of this from the very beginning. And my sense is if you want to keep up with what's going on, you should read her. So that, that is my, uh, uh what I'm reading. And again, it's, I apologize that it's not the bigger picture stuff we usually do. No, the other I... bigger picture thing I would say though, that, that I'm something I'm watching is that people, regardless of, of, of where you're from or who you are, um, but I say this probably as a Clevelander, you should watch, uh, LeBron James, who may be the greatest basketball player ever playing at his greatest ever. Absolutely. Um, and this, this may be, this may be one of these things where uh, you and I you are know, horribly may, biased on not, this. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it, it may not, it may not come again uh, in your lifetime. Now, again, I suppose I probably said that back when in the nineties watching Michael Jordan. Um, but uh, yeah, watching some of these, these last two playoff games uh, it's, it's just, he, he and again, there has always been this debate of who was the, the greatest ever. Uh, and to my mind, in this last week, uh, LeBron has sort of staked his claim to be the the greatest of all time. Yeah, it definitely reminds me of of watching uh, uh, 
watching Michael Jordan's Bulls teams beat our Cavs teams in the right, uh, exactly. in the nineties. Now it's the winning, but. exactly. But but no, it's you know I think just more generally, even if you're not necessarily a huge basketball fan, just being able to appreciate a level of excellence in anything that comes up comes around maybe once a generation is it's a special thing. Uh, obviously, it's even more special when that excellence is uh, a part of your hometown team, certainly. But uh, it's certainly worth worth watching. I totally agree with you there. So, all right. Well, my things, something very kind of off the beaten path. I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts a while ago, and I heard a guy named James Martin talk about his his latest book called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Uh, sort of a, it's really a fascinating book and I picked it up. I, I thought the interview was really interesting and I picked up the book and I've gotten really interested in it. And of course, our, uh, the, the current Pope is a Jesuit, which is the first time and probably the last time that a Jesuit, at least for a while, will be Pope. <laughs> How's that working out for you? Well, yeah, and there's this big, for, for folks who don't really know about this, essentially the the Pope is very much kind of toward the liberal end of things, as many of you may know politically. And he said a lot of things that have really angered a lot of conservative American Catholics, most uh, most I don't know, famously, but uh, Ross Douthit, who is a columnist for the conservative columnist for the New York Times, and he's a legitimate conservative. You really like. Yeah, and he's he's written a lot of great stuff. Uh, but he just came out with a new book that basically uh, calling uh, Pope Francis a kind of a small-minded heretic, kind of a, a Donald Trump of the Catholic Church. Believes that he's just tearing it apart, uh, essentially. And um, so it's it's a kind of a fascinating civil war kind of that's going on in parts of the Catholic Church, and it's very much based on political things. So this kind of comes back to politics in that. Um, and and we should know you went you went to Catholic school. Yeah, I'm kind of a. I mean, yeah. I'm, so I'm certainly. Sort of, a, are, you, are you officially Jesuit educated? But was it was it Jesuit? I got kicked out of Saint Ignatius High School, uh, or okay. asked, asked not to return after a couple of years. Is how I believe that the fathers put it. But uh, but so yeah, you know, I, so I've always been drawn to the Jesuits because they are well more left of center, and they are kind of sort of I'd say sort of kick ass, the most kick ass order. But anyway. Uh, this is really kind of an interesting, I think, debate, and it is very political. And uh, some of the things the Pope has said, certainly. There's a great article, and this is what I'll link to, aside from the Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. An article, a recent article by Andrew Sullivan, who is also a, a Catholic, but is a conservative, is also a gay man. And so he has a lot of kind he's, of conflicts. He's got it all covered. Well, well yeah, exactly. <laughs> an article called Pope Francis Isn't Catholicism's Trump. And I think it makes some Great points about the Pope, about Ross Douthit, about uh, the difficulty of being a person of faith in uh, the modern West. It's just a great read. So I, I definitely recommend that. All right. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, that's this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. And, of course, your support, that's what keeps us going. We appreciate it. And, again, to support us, go to politicsguys.com slash support or politicsguys.com and then just click on the support thing you'll find there in the menu. Um, subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also is a big help. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we have all kinds of interesting discussions throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.